Hey, I'm Zach Silk, and I'm the president of Civic Ventures. Uh, many of you know that I grew up in rural America, and rural issues are very close to my heart. And honestly, they should be close to everyone's heart, particularly because of the way that we have our political system structured in the United States. It over-indexes to rural places. That is, uh, rural places have more power in the system than urban places. So I think it's very important that we understand what's going on in rural America. And I was uh, taken aback by this extraordinary essay that came out last month. It's by a fellow named Bill Hogseth. He was the chair of the Democratic Party in Dunn County, Wisconsin. And in fact, he uh, grew up and lives near where I went to college in Wisconsin. And his piece in Politico is titled, Why Democrats Keep Losing Rural Counties Like Mine. It's an awesome piece. I loved it so much that I wanted to call him up and talk about it. My name is Bill Hogseth, and I am a rural progressive organizer. Thank you so much for coming on. I think you know this, but I'm from Wisconsin. <laughs> so uh, I'm calling you today from Seattle, but I grew up in Wisconsin. I grew up in a tiny little town. Uh, there are many tiny little towns in Wisconsin. I grew up in a place called Wild Rose, Wisconsin. Yeah. Is that like uh, Wood County? Oh, it's actually Washera County. Washera. Okay. I'm sorry. My Wisconsin geography is off. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, <laughs> it happens to be one of the deep red counties in the center of the state, uh, just yep. west of Oshkosh. Right. So we're, we're west of Oshkosh, a uh, couple hours north of Madison. Where are you from in Wisconsin? Where I know you're, you're from Dunn County, if I read the piece right. Yeah. Yeah. My family is six generations deep in this area of the state that we call the Chippewa Valley. Um, so parts of Dunn County, Chippewa County, and Eau Claire County is where my, my family hails from. Yeah. And I'm still living here. My wife and I live with our two little boys in Dunn County in a small town called Elk Mound. And we are about 70 miles east of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I just wanted to say thank you so much for writing uh, that piece in Politico. Uh, it was titled, Why Democrats Keep Losing Rural Counties Like Mine. I have to say, you know, every single line of that, I couldn't help but feel like you were speaking what I was thinking out into the world. Um, hmm. And it was great to read. And I really felt like, particularly after the election, um, where now we've seen just successive elections where you know, Democrats have, are losing rural America and they're asking what seems to me like all the wrong questions about why that yeah. is. Yeah. And I just loved so much of what you had to say. So I'm, I'm really honored to be able to, to talk to you. I'd love to hear what got you into politics and how you found yourself in involved in local politics. Um, I've always, since I was a kid, been a uh, political thinker in high school. I I, even before I could vote, I um, campaigned for Ralph Nader. Um, <laughs> and I just always saw a connection between the policies that were coming out of places uh, where lawmakers were, whether it was Madison or DC, saw a connection between that and the lives of people and always saw it as important, eventually kind of launched off the sidelines in 2016 after Donald Trump was elected as president. And I made it my goal uh, to use pretty much all my free time to make sure that he wasn't reelected. And 
part of the reason I, I decided to make that my goal was, well, one, I was terrified with what his presidency would mean in the lives of my kids and my neighbors and my loved ones. And a lot of those, a lot of those fears are coming to the surface right now. But the other thing is that recognizing that I live in, you know, one of the three or four most important swing states in the country. And I thought if I, if, if there's something for me to use my time to have a high impact, it would be to get involved in the political process and to do it at the local level uh, to try to make sure we can get out the vote and as many votes as we can to contribute to uh, to making sure he wasn't reelected. I'd like to go down this politics road a little bit more. One of the things that you said in the piece is you talked about your dedication to good organizing. Mm-hmm. And really, writ large, the party uh, has done a lot of organizing. There's real commitment to organizing in Wisconsin. I think Barack Obama famously made a lot of organizing commitments across the country, especially in 2008. Uh, and there is kind of a resurgence of organizing that's been going on, but it wasn't enough to win Dunn County. And you point that out. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on the limits of organizing or maybe better put, what is the positives and benefits of organizing? Because I don't think we want to disparage it, but there are limits to it, right? Because even after all that great work, it wasn't it wasn't enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to start, I want to just say, like, I, I identify as an organizer. It's part of my DNA. I really believe that the change that we need to make in the world that's going to help the lives of real people is starts with getting real people involved in the process. And to me, that's the heart of good organizing. And I didn't mean to disparage organizing and saying, oh, it wasn't enough. So it's not important in my article my hope in writing the article was to provide the perspective of someone who did dedicate his life to, you know, in, in a volunteer capacity to organizing. I gave up my free time to make sure that I was getting my neighbors off the sidelines and having them take responsibility to get out the vote. But I kept on having these nagging thoughts while, while we were having conversations with voters and while we were recruiting volunteers and uh, doing all that grassroots work that I would have, I would have people on the phone or at the doors before the pandemic ask me, well, I don't see anything different in my life after the Obama administration. What's the Biden administration going to do for me? And there were those conversations with folks who live in rural communities where it was hard for us to point to something uh, that was going to change their life in a measurable, visible, tangible way that was connected to their experience as a rural American. Um, And so to get back to your question, I think organizing is an essential part of the process, especially in rural areas where you really need to have those relationships on a one-to-one basis where people could start trusting progressives in rural areas again. But if you don't have some kind of transformative vision or some big audacious plan for how you're going to change people's lives that you can point to, when you're doing that work, it makes the organizing really, really difficult. I'm an organizer, lifelong organizer like you. I think organizing is the central part of making progressive change in America. The reality is that at the end of the day, what we have on our side is people. And the only way you get people to express power is to organize them. So it's like, I agree, it's like an essential ingredient, but let's be honest, it's not enough, right? So some of what you said in your piece really resonated with me. And I've got a lot of complaints about the way that Obama and team governed. Really, it's important to understand 
that you've got to do the organizing, but just as important, you have to do the delivering. Because yes. <laughs> what, what you've done when you've done organizing is you've, you've lifted people up and given them hope for a different tomorrow, right? Yes. And uh, that's part of the key of organizing. It's like helping them believe that things can be different if they just band together. But when you disappoint them and you don't deliver, it's really, really devastating. And as we know, Obama actually did very well uh, with rural America, particularly in the upper Midwest, but it collapsed. And I think the support for Democrats collapsed. And part of that is attached to the governing, right? The delivering. It was a really just a honestly a complete disconnect if you went back and kind of read the things that Obama would say in speeches in places like Wisconsin or put in television ads and then you looked at his governing record they they couldn't be more opposite <laughs> and I know you've said a little bit about that in your piece about this kind of notion that if you don't have an agenda that's going to deliver for rural people it doesn't matter how much organizing you do or how much speechifying you do you really have to deliver uh, could you talk about what your thoughts are on what it means to to deliver and fight uh, for rural America? And let me just start and say, like, I'm an organizer. I'm not a policy expert. So um, a lot of my thoughts just have to do really with starting the policy question by looking at people's lives in the community where you live and having an open heart and looking for where is the suffering happening? And where are people experiencing that in their lives? And then working backwards from there uh, to identify what are the policies that are actually going to change people's lives. And so really connecting it to people's experiences and, and finding ways to, to change the material conditions that people find themselves in right now, because uh, the economic despair amongst the folks who I live around is palpable. So having some way to show that kind of change. And then Recognizing that a lot of those policies, whether they're antitrust policies or uh, changes to the for-profit healthcare system, passing those policies are going to require coming up against powerful interests. And for those policies to become reality, there's going to need to be some sort of fight. And the folks who I talk to around here, you know, especially like farmers, for example, they really understand the way the economic system works, and they really understand. Uh, how economic power works, how the companies that they buy their fertilizer and seed from have pretty much monopolized that sector or the, the companies they sell their grain to, they, they can't go around and try to get the best price for their, for their grain because there's only one or two buyers in the area. So they understand this. And so they know when a policy is proposed, well, there needs to be a fight because there's significant economic power surrounding them and surrounding the the communities that they live in. There's this horrible perception driven by, you know, elite media and folks who uh, live in, in urban environments that somehow rural people are naive to power. People who live in rural America have a more sophisticated understanding of power arrangements than anybody I've ever spent time with in cities. And part of that is exactly what you just said, which is they understand it at this very personal level, like how it affects their crops, how it affects what they're trying to get to market, how the international markets affect the price for what they're producing. And then if you're not a farmer, there's also the dynamic of if you own a business in a small town, you know directly what it meant when Walmart came in. Yeah, I agree. And I would add to that just that a lot of the 
like local town boards and a lot of the school boards, people in the communities where I live in um, experience these really direct face-to-face relationships when it comes to like government in, in their lives. And they often know the people who are their town chair and uh, who are the president of their school board and see them at the grocery store and talk with them at the coffee shop. And, and I think that adds to the perception of how power and resources work. And I would just add also too that when it comes to the understanding of power, I think there's this overwhelming feeling amongst my neighbors that a lot of the decisions that affect their life are made somewhere else. Culture happens somewhere else. Uh, capital flows somewhere else. Uh, decisions are made somewhere else. And when you think about this idea of resentment, uh, I think that's where a lot of this comes from, that we're not in control of our own destinies here. And I think this goes both ways in the rural-urban divide, that there, that stereotypes are alive and well of rural people. And I think also of urban people, stereotypes held by rural folks, because there's not the cross-pollination and the opportunities for those communities to go experience one another enough. So, you know, there's this often stereotype that, you know, everybody in rural America is a farmer. Well, it's certainly not the case. Uh, <laughs> and um, so, you you know, you get like political organizations wanting to develop a rural message and it's, they often have a picture of a farmer in there. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, and it becomes a caricature of itself. So that's like, I just appreciate you just mentioning that a lot of our perceptions of rural and urban can be based on those, on those stereotypes, but to the experience of like just living in rural America, um, you know, I grew up in Eau Claire and Chippewa Falls, which are very close to here. I chose to raise a family here and I'm 40 years old. So one of the things that for me, and I think it's common amongst other of my neighbors is that we often choose to spend our lives here um, and we are not as mobile as I think other folks in the country have are, um, or at least at least that I'd know of. But um, so I have this, it's interesting to have this sort of 40 year time-lapse video of my life where hmm. I have seen my community change over those decades and having the memories of those barns that I see that are now empty and rotten and the roofs are collapsed knowing that those barns, uh, you know, when I was a kid had 30 or, or 40 cows in the, in the bottom stalls and um, were supporting uh, a small family business. And it was part of this sort of network of small farms that were really holding up the rural communities around here. And then to be able to fast forward now to myself as an adult, and I'm driving uh, in the town after, you know, empty barn after empty barn, and then starting to see these um, large dairies, you know, that have 2,000 cows in them now. It, it's your, I guess we just, when you live here your whole life, you, you experience the story um, and you experience that change uh, visually. And it's this, it's this feeling that uh, you get back to that things are changing without really our own, without our voices being part of that process. I was talking to a dairy farmer last year and I don't know if his stats were right, but he, he's a smart dude. And he said in Dunn County in 1972, there were 1100 dairy farms just in our, our County. And then as of last year, he said there were 150 dairy farms. And so this whole feeling that like all these small businesses are blinking off the landscape and then you, uh, you know, businesses that you could actually raise a family with 
And then you see these visual reminders of these empty barns. It's, uh, yeah, it's just, it reminds you that the economy has changed and that it's, and that it's harder and harder to get by around here. And also when you, when you're someone like me, a lot of my friends have left this area. I see more people having left than people having stayed. And so that's another feeling like, well, the people who you grew up with are all, are all gone because there's nothing to stay here for. Yeah. Sadly, I'm, I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay. Not to, no, I, mean, I know it's, yeah, uh, the but opportunities I, are elsewhere. I wrestle with it myself, as you might imagine, you know, but it had almost everything to do with opportunity. You know, yes. there used to be, you could stick around, you could become a manager of a store, you could inherit your family's business, you could inherit your family's farm. There, there are reasons to stay and you could be successful. And if you were ambitious, there was absolutely nothing wrong with sticking around and making that happen. And that carried generation after generation. And, you know, there's, you know, bunches of us that we saw opportunities elsewhere because we didn't feel like there were opportunities there. And I, you know, when I was younger, I didn't really understand what that meant. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I realized that this didn't happen by accident. Yeah. Uh, this happened because people made choices. Policymakers made choices that got us into this mess and policymakers can make choices to get us out of this mess. And uh, that uh, to me is one of the things you're kind of alluding to that there's no reason that rural America shouldn't have as ample opportunities as it once did, we made choices that basically treated rural America as a place to exploit rather than a place to invest in and celebrate. And that plays out in farms and plays out in small businesses and small towns. You know, and one of the things I think that's really important for everybody listening to understand is that one of the big choices that was made is, is we let people, companies uh, concentrate, gather up power. Yep. And as they concentrated economic power, they concentrated political power, which fed more concentration of economic power. In your piece, you talk about it's time to fight for rural people. Democrats want to win. They need to fight for rural people again and for their interests. And, you know, really, that to me is what matters most. We used to win rural America. It wasn't a mystery how we did it. You know, FDR had a, a new deal where he delivered massive investments in infrastructure in your community, electrification, helped with farming, helped with infrastructure and road building and other things that were going to allow you to get your, your goods to market. And of course, he gave people resources. He helped with unemployment. He helped with retirement. And then, the, you know, and the final and most important thing, of course, is he fought concentration. He fought the robber barons, <laughs> the previous right. generation of concentrated trust power. And that all helped rural America thrive. And I think that to me, is what we have to return to is this idea of fighting for rural America. But um, I don't know about you. I run into a lot of people whenever I ask people about how they want to start fighting for rural America again. And I hear a lot of, you know, warmed over trickle down economics. Only we give more big tax breaks to big businesses. If only we people learned how to code, they could get their way out of this. Do you hear, right. hear a lot of that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I do hear a lot of that. I, I actually had a reply from someone after my article went that literally said the only problem, the only challenge facing rural areas is, is that they aren't urbanizing. <laughs> uh, and the person provided this, a lot of rationale to support their argument, but I, it was all lost on me. And it, it really smacked of, of some of the misconceptions about rural prosperity. But yeah, I mean, to your, to your point, like what does it look like to fight from a policy standpoint for, rural America that isn't like one of these 
I don't know, stereotyped, um, something that's based off a stereotype. A great example, you mentioned, you know, FDR's New Deal. And one of the gifts from the New Deal was, you know, supply management of, of agricultural of agricultural products and the price supports that were in there to make sure that small farmers had the ability that supply and demand were balanced and and that would make sure that small farmers had the ability to get a fair price uh, for the milk they were making or the meat they were making. And, you know, in 1996, when I was a sophomore in high school, that farm bill, which was signed by Bill Clinton, ended those price supports. And I, I think it kind of led the way to the dairy crisis that we're in right now, uh, where we're losing hundreds of dairy farms a year in a state that's called the dairy state. So that's an example, like supply management and price stabilization for for dairy farmers. That is something that could be that could be brought up and it could be championed by the Biden administration. Now I'm not hopeful because um, Tom Vilsack has been appointed as the ag secretary and his background on supply management is not a favorable one, but it's those types of policies that I think could, you know, getting back to that question of people's lives, just stabilizing prices so that the price of a hundred weight of milk is not below the break even point for someone who's running a dairy farm for dairy farmers to operate for year after year after year below the break even point. I mean, I, I ask people like, what would it be like for you to go to your job month after month after month and not collect a paycheck? Would you be mad at the arrangement that you're that you're in? Would you feel trapped? And I think everyone would say yes that uh, that they would think that there is some injustice there. And I think that's how a lot of farmers have, who I talk to at least, have have felt during this time of like crazy, crazy low commodity prices for the products that they're that they're uh, producing every day. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to make sure to hit on, you know, something like 50% of the jobs in rural America now are tied to corporate America. And what we ought to be doing is holding those large companies to much higher standards. And uh, right now they're paying, you know, really below most places they're paying well below $15 an hour, of course, but, you know, often as, as little as the federal minimum wage. And that just means that these jobs that potentially at one time were the types of jobs where you could be a manager at your local diner and be able to lead a good, stable life. Uh, now you're working for a fast food chain and you're a manager and you're working 60 hours a week, making minimum wage or just above it. Yeah. Hallelujah to that. I was just up in a uh, town north of me called Colfax and drove by the Dollar General and drove by the Senex gas station that actually just got got its name changed because it just experienced some consolidation. It's now Synergy and in, in the in the local subway and mm -hmm. all these corporations that are now the businesses in these small towns. Yeah, I I agree with you. Another another thing that I've also been thinking about that I think has some promise is this idea of revitalizing the U.S. Postal Service to start delivering postal banking and providing just like basic financial services to the small towns around us that aren't um, serviced by banks. I mean, there's 14 million Americans that are basically don't have access to those, you know, personal checking accounts or small loans or things like that. And I think that could be a way to, you know, there's 31,000 post offices in the country. 
that reach into all corners of the country. And if you want to provide a living example to someone of the good that government can do in their life, I think the Postal Service offers us a really amazing opportunity to do that. Do you have anything you wanted to hit that we have not had a chance to talk about? Yeah, I'll just say one thing that like, for me, as I talk to other rural folks who live around me and work around me, and they ask me like, you know, questions about different ways to organize the economy so that it can actually lift up the community rather than extract from the community. And I think there's just such an amazing power in having a vibrant example of what that looks like. And one way I've been able to I think, communicate that better here in Wisconsin is that one of our most enduring institutions that everyone loves in this state is really an example of what a progressive institution is, which is the Green Bay Packers. And <laughs> it's an organization that came out of the progressive era and when Wisconsin was a leader, you know, in, in that movement, and we were, you mentioned minimum wage, we were the first state to pass a minimum, minimum wage law uh, six years before the Packers were founded. And, you know, that, that team would not exist if the community hadn't taken ownership of it. It would have fallen into bankruptcy. And then even if it hadn't fallen into bankruptcy, it would have been moved. <laughs> you know, if there was some billionaire owner, it would be now like the, uh, the, the Los Angeles Packers or whatever. And there's a reason that we're still Lambeau Field and we're not, um, we're not Uline Field. We're not some corporate stadium. I, I like examples and I point to the Packers to help people understand that when you have an organization, a firm that uh, is owned by the community and it's giving back to the community, its profits are shared and recycled back into the community, into the player facilities, uh, and the decisions are made by by uh, the community. It's really an awesome example to help people understand that things don't have to look the way they currently look in terms of giant corporations <laughs> making all the decisions in the economy. For people who didn't grow up in Wisconsin, there's church and football <laughs> and yes. on Sundays, and um, it's really a special, really special thing. And I, I love that example. Let me just ask uh, one final thing or two. I have two quick things. One, if somebody was elected leader came to you today and said, I want to win rural America back for Democrats, so what would you broadly tell them? What would your simple message be to them? My simple message would be the policies are important. And many of the policies we talked about earlier in the show, I would point them towards uh, antitrust enforcement or supply management or revitalizing the U.S. Postal Service. But I would say perhaps even more important is tell the story. Because when people are in a situation where their lives and the lives of the people who they love are not going well, people look around and try to find an explanation that makes sense to them for why that's happening to them. And stories are the way human beings make sense of their reality. And if no one's telling them a story from the progressive side of things, they're going to reach for other stories. And that was, I think, what happened with Donald Trump. Donald Trump told them a story that villainized other working people uh, as being uh, one another's enemies and promoted that scarcity mindset that we're all fighting for smaller and smaller pieces of the pie, so you better get yours. And I think progressives fail to tell a story that resonates with the rural experience. And I would also say, importantly, 
every story has a plot, every story has a moral, but also every story has a villain. And it's really important to name that villain and put a face on the villain. And the villain is the system that enables the economic plundering of of these places that we love and that we call home and the soil that the crops grow out of. And um, there's specific people who benefit from the status quo and the, and the way things are right now. And we just need to name who they are. To the extent to that we don't tell that story, we leave this huge opening for other people to tell a different story. And that's pretty dangerous. Campaign slogans, talking points, and well-produced TV ads don't supplement for a good story that resonates with people's experiences. Yeah, that that's awesome. You know, something we ask all our guests is, why do you do this work? Oh, yeah. Why do I do this work? I do this work for two reasons. The first is because I have children and I feel a responsibility to them, not just to make sure that they've got a decent world that I'm going to send them out to into when they're um, when they're grown men. But also, I want to provide an example to them of what it looks like to be an engaged citizen uh, and somebody who's taking responsibility for the world they live in and not just letting things happen to them. Uh, the other the other reason I I do this work is because I really truly believe in the dignity of every human being and um, want everybody to have what they need to survive and prosper. And uh, even my neighbors down the street who disagree with me politically, I would go, you know, snow blow their driveway or pull their truck out of the ditch if they needed help. Um, and I will fight for a world where they can get health care if they need it and make sure that if they're farmers, they get fair prices in the marketplace. Hey, Bill, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, Zach, it was great. Great talking. Glad we had a chance to meet and um, hope to hear from you again soon. Go Pack. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.